Hello and welcome to the show. I'm your host, Jason Knight, and on each episode of this podcast, I'll be having inspiring conversations with passionate product people. If that sounds like your cup of tea, why not head over to onenightinproduct.com where you can find interviews with some of the finest minds in and around product management. Binge the back catalogue, subscribe on your favourite podcast app or share with your friends. And if you fancy popping some spare change in the tip jar to help with hosting costs, there's a handy donate link at the top to stop me turning to the dark side of having to run Squarespace ads. On tonight's episode, we talk about one of my favourite topics, B2B product management, and how to map your way to product success via a tried and trusted innovation plan that will get your product from idea to the hands of your first 10 customers. We talk about why 10 is the magic number, some of the ways you might find these people in the first place, how to make sure you're not over-optimising for the needs of the few, and some of the general challenges of trying to find the near-mythical concept of product market fit in B2B. We also consider my guest's work applying product principles to one of the most important missions there is, where the main objective is preventing the collapse of the Earth's ecosystem, and the key result is reducing carbon emissions despite everyone else's best efforts to make them go up. For all this and much more, please join us on One Night in Product. So, my guest tonight is Daniel Elizalde. Daniel's a product executive turned coach, advisor, and now author who says all jobs are weird. Daniel's worked on some of the hardest problems there are, including detecting landmines, so I'm sure he won't be surprised by any questions in this interview tonight, as well as these days helping climate tech companies accelerate their products' time to market. He's also here to help B2B companies in general innovate better with his impending book, The B2B Innovators Map, which aims to get you from your idea to first 10 customers. Let's hope they're the right 10. Hi, Daniel. How are you tonight? That's great, Jason. Thank you so much for having me. I'm very excited to be here. Yeah, it's good to have you here. It's always good to have more compatriots in the B2B journey. All right. So first things first, the book's not out yet, although I guess it probably will be by the time this episode comes out. So obviously really excited to see that come out, get it in my hands and all that stuff. But before that, I guess, how's the writing process been for you? It's been uh, a roller coaster for multiple <laughs> reasons. People say it's really, really, really hard to write a book, and, and it is, but I think it's different for everybody. It's this roller coaster of emotions of, I love this book, I hate this book, I love this book, I hate this book. <laughs> Since I'm very used to writing blog posts and articles, etc., the writing itself hasn't been hard for me. It's more about the fine-tuning and the ideas, and then the imposter syndrome of it's like, is this any good, right? Yeah. But it's been really fun, and now that I'm done and coming out in a couple of weeks, I, uh, you know, I think I would write a second and a third. I can say that. <laughs> I'd say that now. Yeah, no, you went to get the first one out first, I guess. Yeah. But you've got quite a list of testimonials in the book. You've got quite a few people that have given you glowing references, and that's obviously fantastic. So are these all people that you've kind of turned to along the way and tried to get them to help you validate that the ideas in the book are good and that they make sense and that you're not just going to fall on your face? Or has it been kind of a, a wider group of people that you've been talking to to try and do some of that stuff as well? A little bit of both. I approached the book as a product. So very early on, I interviewed a lot of people to understand what are the challenges that they wanted me to talk about. It's not what I wanted to do. In fact, a lot of the ideas that I thought I'm going to write about this, nobody cared about. And so the book, the book when it launches, it's going to be about its 10th rewrite. And oh, wow. the first ones, I, I would put out the the manuscript for feedback from you know people that I know, that I trust, and it would get destroyed and I would rewrite over and over and over again. <laughs> and then eventually I start getting some of the feedback like you saw in those comments, like, I wish I had this 10 years ago. 
every product person in B2B needs this. And it's like, okay, now I know I'm onto something, right? So, but it was always going through iterations, presenting it to people, get their feedback. And then when I had questions that I wanted to go deeper, I actually leveraged my podcast because just like you, I have a podcast. Yeah. And so if I wanted to understand something about, you know, the, the early adopter journey, well, I interviewed Jeffrey Moore. Yeah. Or if I wanted to learn something about product market fit, I interviewed Steve Blank. And so those were very helpful to just like, you know, th- there's something here. And, right. you know, they got upset in some of the comments, but that's how it is. Right? <laughs> it's interesting, though, because one of the things that I've reflected on, I mean, I've been podcasting for coming up two years now. And obviously spoken to a bunch of people myself, and it's obviously always really insightful and great to have those conversations. But I don't know about you, but I've started to really wonder which of my opinions and things that I think I know are things that I actually think about or know versus things that I've basically just absorbed from all these great people that I've been talking to. I don't know if you feel somewhat the same or if you've managed to compartmentalize a little bit. Yeah, I think that's a really common thing. And and I struggled with that a lot when I was writing the book from like the structure of the book, because I wanted to be my perspective. But at the same time, I felt like all of these things have been written about before, right? It's not like you're coming something new. Yeah. But what I what I had to offer, I think, for the book was putting all the concepts together in my worldview. And then it, the book has a lot of examples, and all of the examples are about my career. And so yeah. it's like, this is how I've learned and how I've internalized the concepts. So uh, it, it's difficult, but... We're all standing in the shoulders of giants, like they say. So <laughs> let's try to add a little bit more and hope it's useful. Yeah, a little bit of additional flavor or just a way to make it resonate with people that maybe other people didn't resonate with. So yeah, I totally get that. I think it's really important. Yeah. And, and I want to say one of the big feedback that I got when I was interviewing a lot of people was, well, number one, there's not a lot of information for B2B innovation and product management. Oh, yeah. And then number two... A lot of the people that I talk to spend a lot of time browsing through books and articles and websites to try to find something. So people would actually show me these big shelves of books. And I say, if I want to know something about this, yeah, right? I have one paragraph in this book and one tip in this other book. Yeah. But like being able to put the story together cohesively in one place, I think that's what I set out to do. And I think that's what my goal is with this effort, at least. It uh, makes a lot of sense and obviously a big fan of getting more good B2B content out there. But let's talk about that content then. So you've got a book. It's called The B2B Innovators Map. What's the top level value proposition? Like if you had to pitch that to some person who you wanted to go and buy that book and use it, like how would you do that? I would say that the book is a practical guide for people working on B2B digital products to go from idea to your first 10 customers. And so as you can see, there's several several things there, right? It's like B2B. When I say digital products, I've mostly been known for IoT. Yeah. But this also applies for enterprise software. So that's why I said, well, it's digital products. And then it's also the first stage of the journey from idea to first 10 customers. It's not to scale. It's not growth. It's like that part, right? That's book two, right? That's book two and three and four, yeah. <laughs> but as I was interviewing a lot of people, I learned that a lot of the new products in B2B fail before getting to five, 10 customers. And so what's the purpose of writing about scale or growth if yeah. 70, 80% of companies never get there, right? No, absolutely. But would you say that books then specifically aimed at product managers, like individual contributors, or is it aimed at product leaders, people running the teams? 
startup founders and entrepreneurs, all of the above, other people? Like, who's the actual ideal target or your kind of key persona for the book? So it is product leaders and executives that are responsible for delivering a new product to market. And so what I wanted to reflect in the book is not necessarily that there are a lot of tactics on how to do it because it's a practical guide. But what I realized is that a lot of the people that are driving these initiatives, whether they are in a startup, a founder, a CEO, or a large corporation in an innovation group, or a product leader, they don't have a, a cohesive framework to put all these ideas together to sell the idea both externally and internally. So it is for the person responsible to driving this product to market right? and their teams. Absolutely. But you're a busy guy, right? Like you're a consultant, you're working to solve really hard problems in climate tech with your consulting practice. And there's obviously a lot to solve there. But that doesn't sound like the kind of guy that can just sit there writing a book, like dedicating loads of time to writing a book. So I guess the question on my lips is, well, why did you decide to write this book? And, and why did you decide to write it now? You know, what happens, I've always wanted to write a book. And I've always felt that B2B could use a little bit more love. <laughs> yes. I was, I was working in, uh, in Silicon Valley. I was uh, vice president of IoT in Ericsson. And then with the pandemic, my wife and I decided that we wanted to move closer to family, which is in Austin, Texas. We had a six-month-old baby at the time. So we needed aunts and uncles and grandparents, right? Support system. <laughs> and so when we got to Austin, there the schools were closed. There was not a lot of opportunity. So my wife and I talked and, and I decided to leave my work at Ericsson and say, I'm going to be a stay-home dad for however long this pandemic takes. And I thought, you know, six months, right? <laughs> and, you know, a year and a half later, there comes out of the pandemic. So during that time, I had a handful of hours a week in between changing diapers and all those things to work on the book. And I said, if I am not be able to you know, drive my full consulting practice during that time, I am going to come out of this pandemic with new IP. And so I've, that's why I focused on the book right now. And, uh, and so that's why I'm finishing it all. And I never thought I was going to be the person to take some time to be with my daughter. And it is the best decision I ever made. So I'm extremely happy and I would do it in a heartbeat again. Oh, 100%. Yeah, family's much more important than some of these tiresome hustle culture cliches that you keep hearing and reading about. And this, yeah, I, I don't think anyone needs to uh, justify themselves now. I think it's a fantastic decision. And I like to spend as much time with my kids as well as, as I possibly can too. So 100%. Mm -hmm. But just as an aside from the book, it sounds really cool working on something as meaningful as climate tech, right? There's some big, hairy problems to solve out there. And kind of everything's at stake, right? Like, it's not like we're just fixing some API for a bank or something like that. We're, we're fixing some of the most meaningful problems on the planet, quite literally. Now, I'm definitely enjoying working on meaningful problems these days, too, in mental health tech. But even that doesn't sound quite as big as saving the planet. <laughs> and it's also pretty hard to make a difference in climate tech because people and governments around the world seem to be aggressively trying to make this harder than it needs to be to solve. Like Even if it was easy to solve, there are so many people putting roadblocks and barriers in the way. So I have to ask, I mean, product management can be tough at the best of times. What is it like working in climate tech product? Yeah, where to start? <laughs> well, first, I have to backtrack a little bit from that question because I grew up in Mexico City, which is one of the most polluted cities in the world. Yeah. So for me, the impact of climate has always been very present. 
And then all my career, I always liked working in this complex problems and climate has always been at the forefront. That's why I left Austin to move to Silicon Valley to work in climate. And I was head of products for an energy storage AI-based company. So it's always been there in that industry. And so when I, before joining Ericsson and I became an independent consultant, I was teaching IoT at Stanford. And a lot of the people that I talked to were from climate-related companies. And so once I had the opportunity to take a step back and become a stay-home dad and then go back to the workforce, I decided, you know, what is it that I really want to do after kind of analyzing my life here? And climate <laughs> has always been my passion. So I said, okay, I want to work in climate. So that's why I focus in my coaching practice, helping climate tech companies. And the reason is because, yes, the challenges are huge, but the opportunity is also huge. And so if we tie that with the book, most of climate tech is B2B. And therefore, most new products never make it to first 10 customers. So if I can lend my, a little bit of my expertise to help make that better, that's why I'm doing this whole thing, right? And the second reason is that, you know, I get to work with all these incredible companies. The technology is unbelievable. Yeah. The opportunity is huge. Now, to your specific question, it is very, very hard because not only the technology is more complex because you're dealing with software and hardware. You also have the, the government regulations. Yeah. And then you also have the complexity that your customers doesn't, don't necessarily want your products. I mean, nobody really <laughs> wants to spend money on the environment, right? So you have to make sure that you understand the operational value of your solution that has a byproduct to climate, right? So it's all these extra variables that make it extra hard, but it's fascinating. Well, that's interesting, though, the idea about people not wanting it because it's just spending money on stuff that they don't want to think about. And that makes me think about wanting to demonstrate some kind of clear ROI on what it is that you're selling them. So like they can actually sit there and say, well, actually on the balance of things, this really does make a lot of sense. Like, is it easy to right. frame things in ways that resonate with people in some way? Like, are there calculations you can do? Or is there some kind of justification that you can bring up that isn't just, well, the planet's going to burn into a ball of fire. Like, There's got to be something that's <laughs> going to be more real for them on the day-to-day -day and something that's going to be more real for them right now, right? Correct. And that's one of the main positioning aspects. So for example, I work with companies that are building technology to help the decarbonization of the economy. And so for example, let's say a building, the building manager wants to reduce how much they pay on their energy bill. That is a real tangible operational problem they have. Yeah. And they don't care if like you just change the light bulbs or you switch <laughs> to solar or you turn off all the lights, right? The solution is, is different. So all about the money. Exactly. If you can come in with a solution, let's say energy storage that charges from solar, incredible technology. And if that results in a savings on their electricity bill of what they want, that's a no-brainer. And it just happens to be the benefit that you're not burning fossil fuel to drive that building, right? You're using from renewables. So that is a perspective, right? It's like, what's the operational challenge that these companies want to solve? Reduce risk, increase profits, reduce costs. And how can your solution, whether it be carbon capture, whether it be forecasting platforms, whether would it be EV chargers, electric vehicles, fleets of electric vehicles, all these things controlled with digital solutions and IoT, they will result in a cost benefit for these customers. And so the companies that I work with, it's all about building a product that delivers on that result. Yeah. 
so that they can provide that value to their customer. Now, that makes a lot of sense. And I could probably talk about this whole topic for multiple podcast episodes, but I guess just to finish that section, is there any one company in there or one solution amongst the companies that you are working with at the moment that really excites you the most? Like something that you just sit there and think, yeah, yeah, that's the one. Oof, there's there, honestly, there's so many that are doing so much incredible work in the various areas. Because if you think about, let's say, just decarbonizing the grid, you have to deal with energy production, energy transmission, energy distribution. And so each one of those elements has a series of companies that are using incredible technology with AI, with IoT, with edge computing, with distributed computing that can actually make that portion of the problem solvable. So I work with companies that like they do fast chargers for bus fleets, but other companies that are doing carbon capture from the air and putting it into perfume. Right? So it's like so oh, wow. different things. And they're all doing amazing things, right? They're all doing amazing things and they're all, it's all important. Well, spoken like a true politician. <laughs> <laughs> I don't want any of my clients to think that exactly. one is better than the other. Exactly. They're all your favorite child. They're, they're all my favorite. <laughs> <laughs> so the book lays out an innovation process to get you from idea to your first 10 customers. And as I say, I feel kind of silly going away from such weighty topics back to the book, but I guess we're also saying that the book is going to help companies build some of those climate-facing solutions. So hopefully we're still going to be on the side of moral good here. Now, you kind of touched on it earlier, like some companies are going to kind of live and dream of the idea of getting 10 customers ever mm -hmm. because it can be really challenging, especially with early stage stuff. But I guess the first question on that is why specifically 10 customers? Like, is there a, is that a magic number? Is that something that you've backed up with research? Is it just the easiest number to get? Like, why 10? Yeah, there's a couple of, of, of reasons why 10. So in my experience, right, I've seen companies, when companies work in prototyping a solution and then they get 10 customers in the same target market, yeah, very important, 10 customers in the same target market, by the time you work with 10, you've probably seen everything that's going to go wrong has gone wrong. And so <laughs> at that point, you are at a point where you can start making next level decisions, whether that is investing in scalability or in sales or in marketing or going to growth. Before that, you still haven't proven that you can not only sell 10, but actually deliver value of 10. Now, I have these conversations about, well, what about eight? It's like, yeah, I mean, it's, it's like <laughs> well, seven, you know, maybe, five yeah. is too little, 12 is too many. And it's a, the other reason why I said 10, it's because a lot of what I wrote in the book is about internal alignment with your teams. And so instead of going with a milestone of like, and I'm doing air quotes here, product market fit, <laughs> but nobody knows what it is. If you can say, you know what, our critical milestone is 10 successful customers. Everybody can get behind that, right? And everybody understands where we're going and everybody can be aligned. And so that's why it's a little bit of heuristic, but it has some reasoning behind it. And talking to a lot of people that have gone through this process in the past, they're like, yep, that, that works. But isn't there a slight danger? And I emphasize slight because obviously you'd hope that people did their homework properly. But 10 customers, especially if they're big customers, giving you a bunch of money for the solution and you're kind of almost co-creating with them and almost Wizard of Ozing as much as you can or you know, concierging as much as you can, maybe backing up with professional services to right. cover up for the gaps. Is there not a danger that you can get to 10 
think you're ready to try and go big and scale, but actually you've really built something that isn't actually generic enough to go out to a market because you've been putting so much effort behind it that that 10 customer base that you have is actually still not very representative at all? That's a great question. And that's why the last stage of the innovators map is working with 10 early adopters that are going to be represented of the target market that you want. And then your goal during that whole stage is to figure out whether you're converging towards a problem that can be repeatable past 10 or not, right? And that's why it's not only about delivering value to those 10, but it's like, are, do, are we seeing enough generalization? And also from that comes the strategy of packaging an offering to say, you know what, this portion is our core offering. From here to here is what we have to customize. So we either open a set of APIs or we bring a, an implementation partner or like, yeah. at that point, you can make those decisions, right? But I think it's very important, like I said, to, to make sure that you're always looking for that area that is common and you're converging to the right problem and the right solution. Otherwise, you're just being a professional services firm. And I make a lot of emphasis on that in the book. Uh, Exactly. And like our mutual friend, Mitch Mirinoff, will say, if you're going to do that, you want to put your prices up. Yep. Now, the book lays out a six-point plan to get you from zero to that 10. And with the obvious caveat that we don't want to give away all your secrets, I'd like to spend a little bit of time talking about those six steps from a top-level helicopter perspective. Of course. So first up, we've got strategic alignment. Now, obviously, a lot of companies are going to sit there and say, well, we've got a strategy. Many companies will say that they're aligned. But of course, we all know that that could be a challenge in the real world. And if you look behind the spin. So what are some of the key challenges at this stage that you're looking to solve with this step? Yes. When I was designing this journey, I wasn't sure about starting with a strategic alignment because I thought anybody going in this journey is already aligned. But then I recalled my 20 years of experience and working with (laughs) hundreds of companies, and they're not. And so what you're looking for as 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 the product leader responsible for bringing this to market, to make sure that you have the strategic alignment of your company. And what that means is the company is clear on what problem they want to go and explore. Not solve, but explore, right? Yeah, Because you talk to five executives and they all have different ideas of what they want to go solve. So first is make sure that everybody's aligned with the problem to explore. And the second is that the company is willing to back you up throughout this journey. I I talk to a lot of innovators that say, you know, I'm tasked with creating this next revolutionary product for the company. And I'm by myself. I have no anybody else. I have to borrow people on the weekends. And it's like, if you're not committed to invest and put an innovation team and everything it entails, then just don't do it, right? Yeah, this is more like strategic alignments in that situation, right? You've got loads yeah. of different competing yeah. alignments in different directions with different teams and different politics getting in the way. And exactly. obviously, that's never going to help get anything done. I mean, there's been enough books around how you need to focus, right? So yep. I guess this is just all about doubling down on that aspect. Exactly. And and in in my book, I I have some techniques on how to get that alignment. And I, of course, point out to, you know, many books that dive deeper. But the main takeaway is, if you don't have that alignment, then either stop the initiative, or (laughs) find another job or something, because it's going to go nowhere. I mean, yeah, Uh, absolutely. So then after that, we go straight into market discovery. Now you talked about Jeffy Moore earlier, He's obviously got the book, the classic book, Crossing the Chasm, which will advise us at this stage to niche down, find a small segment of a market that you can own, 
go and completely dominate it and then start to move sideways or wherever you want to move after that. <laughs> is that really what you're talking about with regards to market discovery or are there some different aspects to your approach? There are, there are similar. What I focus on is you have to choose one area to explore because if the goal of this process is to ensure that you are narrowing down on making sure that you understand the problem and you have a solution for a specific audience, then you have to narrow down who that audience is. Yeah. I talked to a lot of companies like startups that would tell me, you know, I have 10 customers. One is in automotive, another one is in healthcare, <laughs> another is in government, another is an air company. Well, you really don't have a cohesive problem that you're solving, right? And so it's a very important to narrow down and say, I am going to attack this particular target market. And I, in the book, I define what does that mean, right? It has to be the same industry, the same use case. I even say the same geography to start, especially in the areas that I work in, you know, energy, healthcare, where regulation is paramount. Yeah. If all of a sudden you're going to say, I'm going to, I'm going to have a customer here, another one in Japan and another one in France, the regulation is going to kill your product. Right? So that's where I go with this market discovery. It's like find this uh, niche that you want to focus on and then find the people in those companies that has a problem that you are willing to solve. So that's the, the main areas in the market discovery stage. That uh, sounds fair enough. And I'm well aware of the dangers of trying to go too wide too soon because you just end up chasing your tail in various different directions and end up all those different alignments that we were just talking about. But after that, then we've aligned, we've found our market, and we're now talking about user discovery. Mm -hmm. Now, there's obviously a lot to speak about with regards to good interview techniques. Maybe I should learn some one day. There are some great <laughs> books about discovery in general and all of the ways that you can visualize the outputs of that and take those back to your team to start to work out what to do next. But mm -hmm. we both know that B2B discovery is not always that simple. So mm -hmm. what are mm -hmm. some of the key watchouts from your perspective when it comes to user discovery in a B2B context? Yeah, that's a great question. So I make the distinction that there are, there are two levels, what we call usually the buyer and the user, right? Yeah. I call it the champion as opposed to the buyer, because initially you don't need a buyer, you need somebody that champions your initiative to get to the first 10. Yep. And so in user discovery, we have to be aware that the champion will have an overarching business outcome, but then a multitude of users working together across departments, their actions will add up to the outcome of the champion. And so therefore, you have to discover all the different people involved in that process so you can figure out where can your product have some differentiated value so that you can contribute to the outcome of the champion. So it's not about making the lives of the specific users better. It is. But if you do that and that doesn't impact the overarching business outcome, then your product is not going to get acquisition, right? Yeah, I always see it as like buyers for the sale and users for the renewal, right? Because you need to win both sets of hearts and minds to make a big splash, as, as you say. So I think it can be really problematic if you focus all of your efforts on one or the other. Yep. And the other thing that's important to understand is that you have users across the enterprise lifecycle that has to do with installation, onboarding, configuration, implementation, maintenance, decommissioning. Yeah. And so all those play a role. So you have to understand that whole life cycle, right? And a lot of companies struggle. And if you're working in projects like I do that have software and hardware, 
then it becomes even harder. And so <laughs> that's why the discovery has to be across all that to figure out where you can add value. And in the book, I have techniques and I have examples and a lot of things. And what does that look like for B2B? Ah, fantastic. I think also, just as an aside, I think the very concept of working with hardware products just terrifies me. But uh, that's probably my problem. It's my problem too, but I chose this path years ago <laughs> and I just can't go with it. Uh, but uh, yeah, it is, it is another, another challenge. Yeah, Another wrinkle. What, what the interesting thing though is that the first three stages of the method, strategic alignment, market discovery, and user discovery are about figuring out the problem of your customers. Yeah. And so whether you're using software or hardware or use, doesn't matter, right? Yeah. Those considerations come into play on the next stage, which is solution planning. Exactly. Well, let's talk about that. So solution planning sounds obvious. Take all those insights that I got in that first diverge part of my double diamond or however many diamonds we're talking about. Take all those insights, go up into my ivory tower, get my typewriter out, start typing, come back down a couple of weeks later, maybe a bit like you did with the book with a fantastic final draft, and then just tell everyone that's what we're going to do. Is it that simple? Or do you advise a slightly <laughs> different approach for solution planning? I actually advise a little bit of a different approach because <laughs> this is this is the opportunity for the various teams. I mean, you have to do this process together with leadership, engineering, product, design. But here's an opportunity to say, given what we know about our customer's challenge, what potential solution could we create? And here's where techniques like uh, that I have in the book, like solution diagramming and things like that, help you articulate all those things so that everybody is aligned on what is it that we're going to build and where are we going to start? What evidence do we have and what do we need to go test? And, yeah. and here, this is where I, you know, based on my experience, I can go deeper with if you decide that what you need to solve the problem is a hardware software solution in IoT, well, I have all sorts of frameworks for that. If it's just cloud, I have all sorts of frameworks for that. Right? But, but the important thing is here, you're going to come up with a potential solution, but you're not going to build it, right? You're going to go into the prototyping stage to test it out little by little. And we can talk more about that. But a lot of people, to be honest, start already at the prototyping stage, right? So they skip this whole thing in advance. And then they complain that two years later, their product didn't, you know, nobody liked it. <laughs> well, let's talk about those prototypes then. So when we're talking about prototyping, are we talking about low fidelity fat marker sketches? Are we talking about no code front pages that we put together? Are we talking about fully built MVPs that are pretty much fully functional and almost the first version of a product, give or take? Like how deep or how detailed do we need to get to take those solutions that we've planned out into our upcoming early adopters to try and validate that these are actually a good thing to do? Excellent question. And, and basically you named it all, right? So the approach is <laughs> here, it's not linear, right? It's iterative. And so you have to start validating whether your proposed solution is actually desirable, feasible, and viable. And I have all sorts of techniques in the book on, on what does that mean. But in reality, you need to start with paper sketches and putting in front of prospects. And if you're going in the right direction, then you can start increasing the level of fidelity with clickable prototypes, higher fidelity prototypes, no-code prototypes, until you actually start building and at some point after this iterative process, your working prototype, as I call it, because I don't like the term MVP, your working <laughs> prototype is going to be so valuable that one of your champions is going to offer to buy it. And at that point, that's your, your gate to go into the early adopter stage. 
But this this period can take a long time. And if you look at the book, it has arrows forward in each of these steps, but it also has arrows backwards. Yeah. So it is possible that your prototypes, you know, the, the solution you're proposing doesn't have any viability or feasibility in the market or desirability. Well, you have to go back to solution planning, or you might have to go back to user discovery or market discovery or all the way to the beginning. Yeah. So you're always back and forth. It's not a linear process by any means, right? And the whole idea is if you're able to invest the least amount possible in some paper prototypes and that didn't work, then go back and try something else, right? Especially in B2B companies are like, okay, we are here. Here's $10 million and 20 <laughs> engineers. Go build me the next thing and we're going to get Q3 up in revenues. Like it doesn't work like that, right? Well, not always. But finally, we're then, <laughs> yeah. but finally, we're on to those early adopters that we talked about. So this is where mm-hmm. we get serious and I think, as you say, start trying to get this into people's hands. Hopefully, they give us a bunch of cash for it. But sales-led B2B product could be a tricky beast sometimes. Like You know this, mm-hmm. I know this. It could be sometimes tricky to get engagement with these users. You may have a certain culture within the company that's a bit terrified of putting not fully formed stuff in front of these users because they're so high value or there's maybe a cultural problem within the industry that you're setting into that means that they're just not likely to respond well to early stuff. Mm-hmm. So where do we find these people and how much do we need to get into their hands? Yes. So excellent, excellent question. And we need always to find these people. And, and here I'm, I'm leveraging Jeffrey Moore's work and Crossing the Chasm, which is early adopters are the people that, are, that have a pain that is so big that are willing to test and to, uh, to, to try an unproven solution in the market. Yeah. And so oftentimes, especially established companies, they try to sell to their existing customers and they're usually what uh, Jeffrey Moore calls pragmatists. So they only want full-fledged, fully scalable, tested solutions. So they're not going to go with your, your working prototype, really. So you have to find the people that are willing to take a risk on you. And one of the things that I, that I discovered is that it's not a matter or it's not a function of size of company. There are early adopters in large companies and there are early adopters in startups. So you just need to find them and make sure that you work together with them. One of the things that I spend the most time on that section of the book is pilots. Yeah. Because, you know, the dreaded pilot hell for <laughs> B2B. And so how do you actually set up a pilot program not only to learn, but for delivering value to your customers so that you can actually move forward. So that whole stage is about, okay, I need to make these customers happy. I need to go through the pilot hell and I need <laughs> to make sure that my 10 first customers are converging into a repeatable solution that I can then think about scaling. Absolutely. I think it's also really fair to say that there are some companies out there, especially if you're a very small early startup, selling into a very large enterprise space, for example, that they can pretty much afford to spend just about anything on your solution in the sense that you're basically going to be charging a rounding error in their annual turnover. So like some companies, even big ones, will just try stuff. And I guess one of the great things that you can do there, and again, you're going to know this just as well as I do, is go in and get in with someone who's trying to make a name for themselves within the company as some kind of transformational Mm -hmm. figure, right? Because if you can get that person's buy-in, then you can pretty much, in theory, at least get them to try out anything for the sake of $10,000 or whatever, which is, again, just a rounding error for them. So there's definitely fertile hunting grounds out there. I guess the only thing that 
might be considered a risk there is that you end up just building for those people that are prepared to pay that money because they kind of bully you into then just building down a rabbit hole for them. So yep, I guess that's just a buyer beware or seller beware type thing going on there. Yeah. And, and that's why I think you've touched on a very important point. That's why you have to go through the early adopter stage to very, you know, together with engineering, because as your customer is demanding some custom pieces for them, you have to build them in a way that they are decoupled. So if uh, they yeah, are not absolutely. part of what you really need to productize, yeah. yes, you can do them, right? But, but decouple them. The other thing, I think one of the mistakes that I've seen companies do is that once you get into these early adopters and you have one of your first customers, the sales team and the executive team latch onto that and say, we're going to grow this account and we're going to penetrate this account. You're not there yet. So it's actually possible that you learn everything that you need to learn, you deliver the value for this pilot, but that pilot dies and it doesn't go forward. That's still okay yeah. because now you have proof that you know finding the right customer, you can deliver this value. So Sometimes I'm telling you, trying to go in and do anything you can because you want to grow that account might be counterproductive. And I have a few examples in the book about, about that. So we've made it through the six steps. We're at the end of the pipeline. We've had the chance to go back if we've failed at any of those steps to revisit our assumptions and maybe come back and have another go. But I'm assuming that even the most optimistic author isn't going to suggest that success is guaranteed at the end of that pipeline, even if you navigate all of those steps successfully. So. What does come next after you've got to your first 10, done your early adopters, you've got some kind of learning, you've got some level of confidence. What do you do now? I mean, aside from wait for book two. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, the first thing to do is wait for book two. The second <laughs> thing you could do, really what, what the first 10 successful customer gives you is market validation that you can get some traction in the market. And so at that point, you are ready to go back and have serious discussions with your leadership team to say, what do we do next? Yeah. Do we go after the next 10? And that might mean, well, I need a business development team of two, three people, or we need marketing money, or you know what? We learned that this is great, but it, it doesn't scale well. Okay, let's, let's invest in technical debt so that we can be ready to pursue the next 10. And so it's an important milestone to make decisions of what's next. But at this point, you've gained the credibility that your product actually has desirability, viability, and feasibility in the market. So if the company is really aligned from the very first step, they should be willing to invest because you actually see a path to revenue and a path to profit after this. Right? Doesn't mean that from here, you hit the you know unicorn hockey stick <laughs> growth, which is, doesn't exist, but you're ready to invest more. That's the main thing. And looking forward to the Simpsons-style money fight as well. <laughs> right. Hmm. And where can people find you after this then if they want to find out more about the book, find out about product management in general, or maybe find out how they can pivot into climate tech? For sure. Thank you. They can find me on my website, uh, danielelisalde.com. And uh, you can also go to b2binnovator.com, which routes to my website again, but that's the page for the book. And there you can also download a free chapter if you want to check it out. Uh, is it the first one or the last one? You'll have to find out. <laughs> all right. Well, I made sure to link that all into the show notes. And then hopefully you get a few people coming in your direction, downloading a free chapter and hopefully finding out a little bit more as well. Well, that's been a fantastic chat. So obviously, really appreciate you taking the time. And I'm always keen to build up my 
network and allies in the world of B2B and we can all support each other and grow and get through this thing together. Obviously, best of luck with the book. Uh, Let's keep in touch. And yeah, again, thanks for taking the time. Thank you so much, Jason. This was a great conversation and uh, I look forward to keeping in touch. As always, thanks for listening. I hope you found the episode inspiring and insightful. If you did, again, I can only encourage you to pop over to onenightinproduct.com, check out some of my other fantastic guests, sign up to the mailing list or subscribe on your favorite podcast app and make sure you share with your friends so you and they can never miss another episode again. I'll be back soon with another inspiring guest, but as for now, thanks and good night.